Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is David Perry, president and CEO of Indigo Ag. Indigo Ag is harnessing nature to help farmers sustainably feed the planet. They improve grower profitability, environmental sustainability, and consumer health through the use of natural microbiology and digital technologies. Founded in 2016, Indigo Ag has raised more than $650 million in funding, and their recently announced Terraton initiative is a global effort to remove a trillion tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and use it to enrich agricultural soils. David's a serial entrepreneur who's founded and built three innovative companies in the last 20 years, leading the last two through successful IPOs and to multi-billion dollar market capitalizations. He also raised over $1.2 billion while generating significant returns for investors in the process. Fascinating episode, great discussion, important topic, and I learned a lot, so I hope you will as well. David Perry, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be invited. I'm really excited for this one. Agriculture is, as you know, an important stop in terms of decarbonization. And that's my focus is decarbonization. So I've been going kind of sector to sector, but I really haven't tackled agriculture yet. And I'm Boston-based, born and raised. And so I've seen this company in the last few years come out of nowhere and just kind of explode onto the scene. And that's Indigo Ag. And Especially with the Terraton Initiative, you guys are doing a lot of stuff that seems highly relevant to the things I'm thinking about. So I had to come and see you. I'm so glad that you were willing to speak with little old me. Hey, it's my pleasure. You're doing interesting stuff. So maybe we'll just take it from the top. What is Indigo Ag? So at Indigo, we think of ourselves as systems innovators. And specifically, we're trying to change the way the agricultural industry works away from effectively a commodity industry today towards one that is decommoditized so that if we're successful, farmers make more money, agriculture is more environmentally friendly, and consumers get healthier food. I guess I'll ask two questions. I mean, I was going to ask, how did the company come about? But maybe we should take a step back further than that because this is not your first rodeo. And I think what's interesting as I prep for this interview is that I mean, you've worked in a bunch of important mission-driven areas, but they don't necessarily have to do with each other. So how have you decided along the way what the right problems are to tackle? And, and then what is it that led you to tackling this one specifically? I started life on a farm in Arkansas. So we had a small farm. We also sold fertilizer to local farmers. So was both a farmer and we had farmers as customers. And then I went on to do completely other stuff. So I have a chemical engineering degree, undergrad, an MBA from Harvard. And really since graduating with my MBA, I've been starting and running technology-based companies. So in 97, I started a company called Chemdex, which was one of the first business-to-business e-commerce companies. Took that public in 99, sold it in 01. I feel like I might have done a case study on Chemdex in business school. Is that possible? What year did you graduate? 03 to 05, I was there. Yeah, almost certainly, yes. (laughs) I'm 99% sure that we did. There was a case on Chemdex written in 
I don't remember if it was 98 or 99 that was taught for several years. And then I took a little break and in 2002 started Anacor Pharmaceuticals, which was a therapeutic company using a completely different chemistry approach, using boron chemistry to create human therapeutics. And we had both a for-profit side focused on new antibiotics and antifungals and a not-for-profit side that was focused on neglected diseases, things like malaria, tuberculosis, African sleeping sickness. Much longer ride with Anacor. Eight years after we started it, took it public in 2010. I stepped down when we got our first drug approved in 2014, and Pfizer ultimately bought Anacor for five and, about $5.5 billion in 2016. Leave on a high. I like it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then so in 2014, I had the opportunity to sort of step back and think about what I wanted to do next. And I started with a completely clean sheet of paper. I just said, I now have the opportunity to do whatever I want to do. How can I take the things I've learned and sort of make the biggest impact? And just concluded out of that that I wanted to focus on food and agriculture, mostly or at least in part because I think food and agriculture represent some of the biggest problems we face as a planet, as a society. What were the problems that were most striking to you as you thought about food and agriculture? And name at least four. One is that agricultural production isn't growing as fast as the population growth demands for food is growing. Today they're roughly balanced, but if they continue on the current path, we'll be way out of balance just 20 or 30 years from now when we have nine and a half billion people on the planet. So population growth is outpacing the ability of the current agricultural system to keep up with that demand. Yes. The second is that the means that we're using to get the growth we are in agriculture are bad for humans and bad for the planet. We're degrading about 25 million acres of farmland each year. We use about 30% more fresh water each year than the planet can replenish. And about 70% of that use goes to agriculture. So you can't really think about water use without thinking about agriculture's use of it. Nitrogen runoff from synthetic fertilizer use causes algae blooms in rivers and lakes and dead zones and oceans. Pesticide residue creates health concerns in humans and so forth. Third is that agriculture is... 25 to 35% of the human cause greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, it's second only to oil and gas in terms of contribution to, to global warming. So, you know, there's a, we believe, a big opportunity to change it from being one of the biggest contributors to the problem to being what I think is one of the most hopeful solutions to the problem. So you came to this realization that there's this industry that has these problems that are fundamental to our quality of life and the planet's quality of, of life. What next? Where'd you start? Especially as a proven entrepreneur, it already taken a company public. So it's always interesting to hear about when you start over from day zero. I've now written five or six business plans in my life, and I always basically start from the same place, which is to talk to anybody who will talk to me. So I go to conferences, I find people who are doing interesting stuff, and I call them and see if they'll meet with me. And that's what I did in this case. So I was looking for either something to start from scratch or something to buy or technology to license and educating myself as I went. In the process, I met the scientific founder of Indigo, a guy named Jeff von Molson, who's a 
remarkably talented biotech entrepreneur. And he had started the predecessor to Indigo. He had 13 people, but really interesting data about how one could use microbiology, sort of naturally occurring microbes, to reduce or replace a lot of the chemicals and fertilizers used today. And was that through the coating on the seeds? At the time, it was just science. We didn't have any way of applying it, but ultimately, that is the way we brought it to market. So it, using coating seeds with microbes to improve their performance. So you found this, this brilliant scientist with a team of 13 people and then decided to join them at that time? So co-invested in the A round, moved from the San Francisco Bay Area to Boston to be the CEO. Great. And what year was that? January of 2015. So a little over four years ago. Yeah. So that's not very much time. And you guys, I think you've raised, what, almost $700 million at, the, at this point? That's correct. Yeah. So how did you get from there to here? And what were some of the key milestones along the way? There's a lot of work in there, but it does feel like it's gone fast. You think? Yeah. <laughs> well, part of it is that there is an enormous potential opportunity. Agriculture is one of the largest industries in the world. It impacts every single one of us every day. And there are a significant number of problems that most people agree with. So if you can figure out how to solve that, it's a potentially really large and valuable company. And so it's with that mindset that we've approached this. It's the way we've built the business plan. It's the way we've raised money, et cetera, that if we can do this, we're going to build a rarely valuable company and therefore, we should hire executives who can manage that kind of company. We should have financial partners who can provide financing for that kind of company and so forth. And so when you first started thinking at that time about going to market, so you had this science and you hadn't figured out how to apply it. And so now you've since progressed and you apply it through this coding, as we, we just touched on. But you're doing a lot of other things as well. And so how did you think about staging at that time? And then how has that thinking evolved as both time has gone on? And also the way that you've capitalized the company has changed quite a bit. One of the things that I talked to Jeff and Flagship Ventures, who incubated the company with before I ever joined, was the bigger picture in agriculture. My view at the time was that there are big problems in agriculture and the solutions are going to require systemic change. And that microbiology could be a cornerstone for what we build that systems change around, but it wasn't going to be sufficient by itself. We're going to have to, to try to build all the building blocks to change agriculture. So fortunately, Jeff and Flagship were fully on board with that, and we've continued to recruit investors who are in agreement. And so we, like most technology companies, spent the next couple of years just working on technology, but we didn't bring anything to market until 2017. As we did all that, we began putting in place, if you were going to design an agricultural system from scratch, what would it look like? and begin building the tools and stuff to, to make that work. With that clean slate, what should an agricultural system look like? And then how is that different than what exists today or in a world where Indigo Ag doesn't exist? Ongoing hypothesis is that one of the reasons that the existing problems in ag do exist is because most farmers are producing commodities. They get paid for volume, a bushel of corn or weight, like pounds of cotton, just like somebody producing a barrel oil does or a ton of iron ore. There is no consideration to most farmers for quality or sustainability. It doesn't matter how they produced it. It doesn't matter what the protein levels are. It doesn't matter what the 
pesticide residue is, as long as it meets certain minimum specs, it's all worth the same thing. And why is that? What is preventing quality from getting factored into those decisions? Well, it's the system. And the, the system was created for good reason. It's more than 100 years old. As people were moving off the farm into urban areas, farmers for the first time in history, their customers changed. <laughs> so for the previous 10,000 years, farmers produced food for themselves, their family, their neighbors. But now they're producing food for people who might be thousands of miles away. And so that requires aggregation. You need to store that differently. You need to be able to ship it in rail cars. And all of that at the time required commoditization so that every bushel of corn would be the same. So you could buy corn from multiple farmers and put it all in the same silo, for example, or all in the same rail car. Because otherwise it would just be logistically chaos. And how would you value it differently? You can't keep it separate. Yeah, just it, that's the only way it would work given the technology that existed you know, 100 years ago. And so that commoditization, is that, the, is that the key tenet of what's broken today or are there others as well that we haven't touched on yet? We think that's the core. Like if you can decommoditize agriculture and make it especially, things immediately get better. So allow buyers of grain and other farm produce to specify what they want and what they're willing to pay for and then farmers to specify what they have and what they'll take for it, and you, voila, you have a specialty market. So think of the local farmer's market as an example of this. People go to the farmer's market because they think they get higher quality, more nutritious food, and farmers are willing to produce things that those customers want because they get paid more for doing so. So is there no menu today? No, there's no scalable way of doing that. And so that's one of the core things that Indigo has done is created called the Indigo's Grain Marketplace. So a giant e-commerce platform where buyers of grain can go and buy directly from farmers. In the first 17 months, so this has only existed, in, we, we launched it in June of 18. It's only 17 months old. Over $250 billion worth of bids have been placed in that marketplace. So if I'm hearing right, it sounds like there's this buzzword being floated around in the valley that I'm sure you know well, which is this kind of full stack company, right? And so you guys look at the agricultural industry and you say, it's broken. And actually, we have this science and new way of doing things using microbiomes, which is more natural. By finding the right microbiomes, it's kind of a wedge, but ultimately it's a wedge to reinvent the whole thing in a way that's far more beneficial for the key tenets that you mentioned, sustainability, health, and farmer livelihood. Farm profitability, yeah. Farm profitability. That was nicely done. Thanks. I'm trying. I'm trying. I did watch a couple of talks that you gave that were long form uh, as part of my, my prep, so hopefully I retain at least a little bit of it, but I still feel like a beginner. So you've got the the coding, right? The seeds. And then you've got the marketplace. Are there other core components of the Indigo vision? And, and also, how many of those are in place today? So marketplace enables decommoditization. That's the reason we think of it as core. But now you've got to do a whole bunch of other stuff to enable farmers to deliver against that. So, for example, you need traceability. We have an announced deal with Anheuser-Busch, as an example, where they're paying more paying farmers a premium for producing sustainably grown rice. But that only works if they know that the rice that's showing up at their mill was grown in the way that they're paying a premium for. So you've got to be able to trace it from the farm all the way to the buyer. 
And so for that reason, we launched Indigo Transport, which is our e-commerce platform for trucking so that farmers who need transportation can get it inexpensively and we can trace goods from farm to, to buyer. Are there point solutions that exist for that monitoring that you're displacing? Or how, how are they doing it before you guys came along? In a commodity market, you don't have to do that. It's, it's, it's the reason you have to think about it as the whole system. So once you enable decommoditization, now there are a whole bunch of pieces you have to put in place to allow people to deliver specialty stuff. Where does the coding fit in in terms of that decommoditization? Well, in that particular case, Anheuser-Busch is asking for those crops to be grown with less nitrogen fertilizer, less water, and a lower carbon footprint. And microbiology helps in all of those by reducing the amount of fertilizer that's needed, reducing the amount of pesticides that are needed, and allowing those plants to be more water use efficient. So who buys the seeds? Farmers buy the seeds. Got it. So you sell the seeds to farmers directly. They produce the crop. If they want, they have participation in this marketplace. Do you have to be a customer of the seeds to participate in this marketplace? No. It's all a la carte, so you can choose to participate in one, any one that you want to, but it obviously works best as a system, and that's what we find most farmers doing. And given you said, I think with the marketplace since it launched, there's been 250 billion claims. Did I get that right? Bids. Bids. Yeah. Bids. Um, so 250 billion bids. I heard you say when talking about this marketplace or any marketplace for that matter, that there's this chicken and egg problem when you get started that each side doesn't have value to the other because there's nothing there. How did you guys get around that and get this traction that quickly? It's true of any marketplace. Day one you have no value to buyers because you don't have any sellers and vice versa. So the single hardest thing to do in most marketplaces is just get started. In our case, we had the advantage of already having lots of farmers as customers. We have a sales force, we had existing customers, so we had a way of aggregating those. We had already built the technology sort of for our own use, so we had something that they could immediately interact with, and then we built a sales force to go talk to buyers and get them on board. Got it. And then the buyers are what profile? Anyone who buys grain. So it could be a brewery, it could be a flour mill, a bakery, a ethanol plant. I mean, truly the entire spectrum. And isn't there, there's like a, it's not like a grain agent, but it's like a place to warehouse the grain that's like a middleman. What It begins with a C maybe. What's that word? I think in a silo? Because no, <laughs> that'd be with an S. No, it's not silo, but there was a, there's actually a term. Like, gosh, I should have written it down. I, I saw it in, you brought it up in one of your talks and then I Googled it. Anyways, it's not important, but it sounds like they were part of that customer base too. Not the end customer, but it's like almost the equivalent of like a reseller, it sounded like. There are grain companies that often sit in between and manage logistics. And the largest of those in the world are companies like Cargill, ADM, Bungie. I'm going to email you the name once I find it of, of whatever this, this category is. But it's, it's not critical for this discussion. <laughs> okay. I'm just trying to show off my, my, my little bit of prep. Okay, so there's the seed, there's the marketplace, there's Indigo Transport. Mm-hmm. Are there other layers of the stack that we haven't talked about yet? There's Indigo Carbon. So we just launched the Terraton Initiative in June, but it's a the goal of the Terraton Initiative is to pull a trillion tons of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Which is the difference between pre-industrial revolution and today, right? In the atmosphere. Very good. And, and store that in agricultural soils. 
And so to do that, we have to build what we call indigo carbon, the ability to measure, quantify, verify, and certify carbon sequestration on farm, turn those into carbon credits and be able to sell those in the existing carbon credit market. And so can you explain that a little bit? Why is that an essential component of this new vision for agriculture? I can. So let me step back on this. We'll state the problem. Scientists recently measured 415 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That's the highest that we know of in the last 14 million years. And it's significantly higher than it was right at the beginning in the Industrial Revolution, where it was about 280 parts per million. That increase from 280 to 415 parts per million represents about a trillion tons of carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere today that wasn't there before we learned how to burn coal and oil for fuel and heat. When people begin to grasp that problem, their first instinct is, okay, we got to quit emitting carbon dioxide. We have to reduce emissions or you used the term earlier, decarbonize. And we absolutely do. <laughs> you know, we need to change the entire economic structure of the planet so that we are less dependent on carbon sources for fuel and heat. And that's not sufficient. If we do that, and let's say we meet every commitment we've made thus far, everybody who signed the Paris Accord meets their commitments, every company that's announced science-based targets do what they say they're going to do. We're still emitting more carbon dioxide tomorrow and a year from now and 10 years from now. While the amount of emissions may be going down, the total amount in the atmosphere is still going up. And by the end of the century, 80 years from now, we're going to have somewhere around 600 parts per million in the atmosphere. And then you might think of as best case, if we don't do anything, it's going to be 1,200 parts per million. Those are levels that are extraordinary given Earth's histories thus far. We don't know exactly what that looks like in terms of climate, but it's bad. So one can quickly conclude that we need to reduce emissions everywhere we can and that that's insufficient. We also have to figure out how to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and undo the damage that we've done. Otherwise reducing emissions is still going to leave us in a really uncomfortable place. And that's sort of where I was about a year ago. Like, the more you understand this, the more hopeless it feels. If we have to reduce emissions, we've laid out targets. It's hard to be optimistic that we're actually going to hit all those targets. And even if we do, all we've done is slowed down an inevitable march toward a climate cliff. That's a bummer. The realization that natural systems can make a huge impact here is the most optimistic thing I know about with regard to climate change. It's completely changed my mindset around it. What led to that revelation? Was there a book or a speaker or a conference or you, you hit your head in the shower? It's like almost all innovations here at Indigo. It's a, it's a result of a whole bunch of conversations with a bunch of different people, but it included realizing that there were certain farmers who were farming in a way that they were building the carbon in their soil. So those farmers are usually called regenerative farmers, and the practices they were using are called regenerative practices. So they're things like using cover crops and not tilling the soil. And they were doing this because 
they thought it was a more profitable way to farm. But they were getting the happy side effect of more and more carbon building up in the soil. And so we approached this from the beginning as, well, how can we pay farmers for that? They're effectively performing a benefit for society. We, as a U.S. government, has already made the decision that that's something to pay for because we pay oil companies for it. For sequestering carbon. Yeah. Oil companies get paid somewhere between $35 and $50 a ton of carbon dioxide. They get paid. They get a tax credit. Is the 45Q? 45Q for pumping carbon dioxide into the ground. Well, if we're willing to pay oil companies for it, our reasoning went, surely we'd be willing to pay farmers for it. And so that's sort of how we started thinking about it is, you know, how do we provide incentives for farmers to farm in a more sustainable way? So is it you that's paying the farmers? No, but let me get back to that. So that's how we started. It was only as we were pretty well into it, we started doing the math on what could this mean from a planetary perspective. And the number is in the trillions of tons of potential. And that's just agricultural soil. I don't need specifics, but but what's the back of the envelope math on that? How did you get to that trillions of tons? There are a whole bunch of backup on this, but really simply, the average carbon concentration in today's agricultural soil is about 1%. Prior to it being cultivated, when it was native prairie or forest or whatever, it was around 3%. If we could get every cultivated acre on earth, so the 3.6 billion acres of farmland, from 1% back to 3%, that would be about a trillion tons of carbon dioxide. Okay, so that's where you get the trillion, and the hard part is actually what is the work that gets us there, and then how credible are these estimates, et cetera. You're saying that's the potential if we can get the soil back. That's the potential, and, and that was only cultivated acres. So there's another 8 billion acres of grassland that also has significant potential to, to increase carbon, and that's on top of that. And then I'll just say a couple of other things, is that, that agriculture is one of the ways of harnessing plants to do this, but not the only one. And I'll make a quick aside. So there's a number of there are people working on a bunch of ways to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, direct air capture, and, and I applaud those efforts. It is absolutely worthwhile. But right now, those sort of machines cost hundreds of dollars a ton to sequester the carbon. And at their current scale, it would take hundreds of millions of the machines to have a real impact. Or we could use plants because this is what they do. The core process for plants is photosynthesis, which is the process of pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere using energy from the sun combined with chlorophyll and turning atmospheric carbon dioxide into hydrocarbons. Every part of a plant used to be carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. They do it for us already. They use a free energy source and they put the carbon in a place where it can be useful. So any credible plan to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere today harnesses photosynthesis. It's the only way for it to be scalable, affordable, and immediate. Well, so going from 1% to 3%, if that's all we need to do for a trillion tons, like that sounds easy. So what actually needs to happen tangibly to go from 1% to 3%? So I feel like I'm about three questions behind, so I'm going to try to catch up for a moment. 
Yeah, sorry. And I keep I keep going. Maybe I shouldn't have had the last cup of coffee. That was that was the one. If the the other five didn't matter, but it was the sixth. All right. So agriculture is a really important way to harness photosynthesis, but it's not the only way. A second really important way are trees and forest. So maintaining trees to the greatest extent possible and planting trees everywhere there's not a more higher use for the land is really important. That can all I'd say worth at least hundreds of billions of tons of potential. And then a third opportunity is oceans or plants that grow in the ocean. So if we can figure out how to harness seaweed or algae, grow it at scale, harvest it somehow. So we've got so much surface area in the oceans that it's got enormous potential and we haven't really figured out how to do that yet. But those three things, which you could lump together as natural solutions all leveraging photosynthesis, have trillions of tons of potential. This is a solvable problem. We're not waiting for a new technical solution. We don't have to depend on something that doesn't exist yet. We just have to decide collectively as a society that we're going to make it happen. That's the optimistic part. Can I add a fourth question into the backlog then? (laughs) Keep them coming. (laughs) Yeah, the, the fourth question is just, when you lay it out, it sounds so compelling and obvious. Why is that such a controversial point amongst people that have dedicated their whole careers to this topic? Well, I'm not sure that it is. I, which, which part are you referring to? Oh, the part that natural solutions could be enough. Why are people pushing so hard on direct care capture and other forms of engineered carbon removal if natural solutions could be enough? Why don't we just put all our eggs into natural solutions? Because it sounds like you think we should. I know there's a lot of experts that think it's all hands on deck and that, that we shouldn't rely on that. So I'm just trying to figure out why they think, maybe I should ask them. Well, I think you put words in my mouth a little bit. I didn't say it was the only thing we should do. In fact, it's critically important that we reduce emissions. Otherwise, we're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere even as we put more back in. So all of this only works if we decarbonize, if we reduce and ultimately stop putting more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So that's one thing. And second is, I think this is a big enough problem that we should do everything that might make sense. The reason I'm so optimistic about natural solutions is we don't have to wait on anything to start. It's big enough. It's scalable. The potential solution is at the same scale as the problem. It's immediate. We don't have to wait for new technology breakthroughs. We can start now. And it's reasonably affordable. It's somewhere around $15 or $20 a ton. We can sequester a whole bunch of carbon. And that's a lot less expensive than other alternatives. We can implement that in today's economy and not cripple what we're doing. If that's the vision, as someone who's very concerned about climate change, how could I not support that vision? I think that sounds fantastic. What's Indigo Ag's role in that process? One of the things that has prevented agriculture from being sort of harnessed in this way is that there was no scalable, affordable way of measuring carbon in the soil. Imagine that you're a company that's buying carbon credits. Today, if you wanted to use farmers to do this, you'd go contract with hundreds or thousands of farmers. You would measure their soil at baseline. You'd come back in a year and measure it again. It's not a feasible approach. And so maybe the most important thing that Indigo brings to this is a scalable, affordable way of measuring, quantifying carbon and turning that into carbon credits, say a currency that the world understands. And so if I'm a farmer, and maybe I'm even a farmer who's a customer of the 
Indigo Ag Seeds. I'm also using the marketplace and I'm selling through the the e-commerce solution with the transport. I hope I got all that right so far. If I also want to improve my soil quality, you think that by enabling them to get credits and essentially get paid to do so, that it will help incentivize that behavior so that a higher percentage of them are doing the things that some of them are doing, both out of a combination of a goodness of their heart and because they believe it's better business. And then connecting them with, is it large enterprises that either are mandated or are voluntarily looking to offset their emissions? Again, an excellent summary. So farmers, for the most part, are the most sustainably minded people I know. And for the most part, they're just trying to make a living. And so if we can give them additional financial incentives to change behavior, we could see a really rapid shift in farming practices. And that's the idea around the Terraton Initiative, being able to quantify the amount of carbon sequestered and then paying farmers to make that change. I think that was a great summary of the different layers of the stack and Inigo Ag's piece. I guess my last question is just, if you had $100 billion and you could allocate it towards anything to maximize its impact in the climate fight, where would you put that money and how would you allocate it? $100 billion. If you could invest that at $20 a ton, that would be 5 billion tons of carbon dioxide. I would first allocate it towards drawdown. So it's important to both reduce emissions and pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. My personal belief is our primary focus ought to be on undoing that damage, getting carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. I would then allocate the money exclusively towards natural solutions. So every scalable, affordable, immediate solution I know harnesses photosynthesis. So I would put some of it in agriculture. I would put some of it into planting trees and maintaining forest. And I would put some of it into research around how can we use oceans to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere as well. Great. And actually... More specific to the Inigo Ag vision, but just in terms of barriers or hurdles, if you could make one change that would most accelerate this vision that you laid out towards becoming a reality, and that might be an Inigo Ag change, or it might be a policy change, or it could be a consumer behavior change and anything change, if you could wave your magic wand, what would change? I'm going to give two answers to that. The first one is, is societal. The biggest thing that could impact this is for society to, A, believe that it's important, and to believe that it's solvable. I believe this is the biggest problem we face this century, maybe the biggest problem we've ever faced. But it's solvable. As of yet, we haven't marshaled our resources accordingly. We've got entrepreneurs focused on a whole bunch of stuff that's a lot less important than this problem. And so for it to be solvable, we've got to turn all of that attention and creativity and innovation and capital towards solving it. So people have to believe it's a problem and they have to have a hopeful perspective. Like they have to believe if they focus on it, it's a solvable problem. Those two things are necessary. Without both of them happening, we're not going to put that sort of attention to it and it's not going to get solved. It's a tragic outcome. So the most important thing we can do is bring awareness of both the problem and the potential for solutions to broader society. The second 
sort of more practical answer to that is a carbon tax or a cap and trade system. Once you put a value on carbon, everything will change. The use of carbon will go down and the sequestration of carbon will go up. And the last question, since I know I'm about to get the cane here, is just for any listener out there who's super concerned about climate change and wants to help, just speak to them for a minute. What advice do you have for them trying to figure out how to apply themselves to maximize their impact on this problem? What's the saying? You be the change you want to see in the world. So I guess I would start there. First, calculate your own carbon footprint. We all have one. Understand how your own lifestyle impacts the problem. And you can, we have a carbon calculator at indigoag.com. There are others out there. But sort of gain an understanding of what your contribution is. Think about how to reduce that impact. So what changes can you make to reduce your own footprint? And then what can you do to offset that? Are there investments you can make either in agriculture or trees or oceans, et cetera, to turn your sort of negative carbon footprint into a positive? Great. Well, I think that's a great point to end on. I learned a lot. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure. I was happy to do it. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.